0: This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing. I'm Mitzi Rabkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. Coming up, an interview with Terry Tempest Williams.
1: You know, I don't use the word hope a lot because I think hope is attached to our desires. For me, hope is engagement. I feel very strongly about faith. My great-grandmother used to always say, you know, faith without works is dead. Engagement for me is is where if you ask me to use the word hope is where I find hope.
0: We'll hear more from Terry Tempest Williams in a few minutes. I want to invite you to be part of the first draft community by becoming a member at patreon.com slash first draft writers. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N dot com slash first draft writers. For your contribution of $6 or more a month, you will receive extras from the shows, including cuts from the interviews that didn't make it into the final episode, writing tips from featured authors, books, and a monthly newsletter. It takes a lot of energy and love to put this show together every week, not to mention equipment, time, and electricity. Your donation helps keep this show going. I am committed to bringing you in-depth conversations with today's best writers of fiction, nonfiction, poetry, and essays. Some of the extras you will receive this month for donating include author Alex Oline talking about how she starts novels by finding a portal where she can enter the story and what features she looks for to know if she has enough traction to continue. You will also receive a writing tip from Taya Obrecht including the rituals she employs while composing, and much more. If first draft is a part of your life, please contribute to keep the dialogue going. I know that right now it's unlikely you are in front of a computer, so I'd like to suggest adding a little reminder for yourself for when you get home to contribute to first draft. Maybe make a note on your phone, an ink mark on your hand, scribble on a piece of paper, something along the lines of first draft, reminder, membership matters. I can't tell you how giddy I get when a new donor joins the community. It reignites my resolve to keep reading a book a week and pursuing meaningful conversations with the authors. So thank you so much. And now I have a website. You can find more about the show at firstdraftwriters.com. There's a link there to donate, an opportunity to sign up for a newsletter, and the entire archive of more than 200 first draft shows. So come visit and listen. And please rate the show on iTunes and tell your friends to subscribe. Thank you so much. My guest today is Terry Tempest Williams, author of nearly 20 books, primarily nonfiction essays about nature, wilderness, politics, spirituality, her family, her home, and citizen engagement. Williams has testified before Congress on women's health issues, been a guest at the White House, has camped in the remote regions of Utah and Alaska wildernesses, and worked as a barefoot artist in Rwanda. She lives in rural Utah and teaches at the Harvard Divinity School in Cambridge, Massachusetts. Her essay collection, Erosion, contains meditations on the loss of the American wilderness and various animal species, the Trump administration's efforts to reduce the size of Bears Ears National Monument in Utah, the rights of Native people in the American Southwest, the politics that helped create the Wilderness Act and the Endangered Species Act, oil and gas development, her own spiritual journey, and the loss of her brother to suicide. In Erosion, Terry Tempest-Williams looks at what we are losing and gaining as a society and what she has personally lost and gained as a writer, activist, and teacher in the American West. We began the interview with Terry Tempest-Williams talking about the theme and ideology of the word erosion.
1: I love the word erosion. I live inside it. Uh, We live in Castle Valley, Utah. If I were to describe it, to you and I know you've been there, so you'll remember that um, if you were standing on our porch and it's in the middle of the valley, to the south you would see the La Salle Mountains, 12,000 feet high. To the north behind us, you would see the Colorado River, which is often running red, carrying sediments downriver. To the west of the setting sun, you have Porcupine Rim. And to the east, you have Adobe Mesa followed by Castleton Tower, a 400-foot monolith made of Entrada sandstone, and next to it is the geologic formation of the priest and nun. It's all erosion, and it's a salt valley that drops. So, you know, I feel like we experience erosion every day we're there. It's not unusual to hear a rock fall. It's not unusual that in a rainstorm, you know, recently we were coming down the canyon toward Moab um, alongside the Colorado River and we counted 53 waterfalls or pour offs from this rain. And when we were at the beginning, you know, coming down canyon, um, the river was running green. By the time we got to the end of, of where we were going, the river was running red. So it's in a constant state of change, and things are being carried away. And that, to me, is what erosion is. It's a Latin word. It literally means gnawing away.
0: Do you feel like it has had a negative connotation in our culture?
1: You know, I was just listening to the news, and they were saying how our democracy is being eroded away and or is eroding And I think that does speak to a decline or uh, a wearing down or a state of being diminished. You know, I don't see it that way. I see it as a process through wind, water, and time on the land that brings the landscape to its essence. Um, In the book, Erosion, Essays of undoing. I'm aware of my own erosion, an erosion of self. Um, I'm aware of an erosion of the body. I'm aware of erosion of decency. In that context, I think it, it is a, a negative. But on the other hand, I think that this erosion we're seeing in our country, that our what appears to be our undoing is also a moment of becoming. We're seeing what we're made of. We're seeing what we stand for. And I think in the end, this will become a moment of transformation, which I think is what erosion actually is.
0: Well, you talk about, too, in the book that you feel like you, at your core, are, are feral. And when I think about that, you know, and, and really get down to the essence, like what that wildness means to be feral, to me, I think about that there's so much to get to our feral core because we're all really wild creatures we're just animals is kind of the rubbing away of all the non-essential stuff all the things that we put on in our lifetime that we don't maybe need maybe it's societal graces or things like that did you always feel like you were feral or was that something that kind of came to you as you were writing these essays
1: such a good question uh, a good question Mitzi I, I have to think about it I did I always think I was feral I mean I want to say no but then when I think about who I was as a child I didn't conform and you know there was a veneer of being domesticated or proper or polite I don't think it was until later um maybe when I met Brooke my husband of 45 years that I was allowed to be my most feral self and um I think that was an erosion of my own conditioning, you know, growing up as a member of the Mormon Church, you know, you did what you were supposed to do. I had fairly strict parents. I behaved well. I was a well-mannered child. But I think in my journals where I was writing, I was constantly questioning the status quo and feeling constrained um, by the oughts and shoulds and if you don't. And I think it was when we moved to Castle Valley 20-plus um, years ago, I think the land we my own, and that was probably
0: the beginning of the end of um,
1: so-called good behavior.
0: As I was reading all your essays, I found three major themes that I recognized were going through a bunch of your essays, which was wilderness and wildlands, politics and the intersection of that and then faith and religion and spirituality. And I don't know how you organized your essays, if the ones at the end were ones that you actually wrote later, but as a reader, I felt like the the idea and the connection to spirituality and religion and faith and exploring more realms of that happened later in the book and, and maybe more current in your life.
1: You know, I really appreciate this conversation because as a writer, you know the book from the inside out. You don't know the book from the outside in. And in many ways, I think you depend on other people to inform you about that. So, I, You know, I, I really hadn't thought about it, but I, I think you're right. I wanted to establish the bedrock of law because we are in a moment of such lawlessness. And so the foundation of the book, the beginning, really does look at the Endangered Species Act, the Wilderness Act, and the the beautiful aspirational laws that were brought into being in the 1960s and 70s, particularly under Richard Nixon, of all things. And it's hard to even comprehend, you know, to think that when the Endangered Species Bill was passed, it was almost unanimous in the Senate. You know, now we don't agree on anything in Congress. So I wanted to set that as a basis for what the environmental issues, you know, ecological issues and environmental um, considerations was in its beginning um, a bipartisan concern. It is anything but now. So I think there was that idea. And then I do think it evolved into ways that take the law and then expand it into a personal relationship with, with, with particular animals and and that this is not just an American um, sensibility but you know whether you're in Rwanda looking at silverback gorillas that are also refugees in much in the same way that during the genocide um, there were refugees you know these gorillas that we were watching were, were in the Virunga Mountains but they were actually migrants in the Congo because of the burning um, forests. or you know going to the Galapagos and seeing what happens when there are no predators. And it's a very different relationship to animals where the the seals will come right up to you, you know, and, and almost lick your lenses um with your goggles, your scuba gear. And so there's that exploration. And then I think it goes into you're right, the, the spiritual aspects of of erosion that become more personal um, until the end. There is my brother's death by suicide, the conversation we had prior to his death, where he literally says, I am erosion, and a uh, look at isolation in contrast to community. And then I think ultimately it ends with Willie Gray-Eye, who is questioned. He is a, a Diné Navajo community leader who is questioned about, where he belongs. He runs for county commissioner in San Juan County. He wins. His opponent says it is an illegitimate election from an illegitimate person that Willie Gray-Eyes lived his entire life in at Navajo Mountain. They say he's not a resident. And then it's a court case that ensues. And ultimately, he wins his case. And what was his case? When he says, I am a resident of Utah because my umbilical cord is buried here. So I think ultimately it's a book about dwelling. Where do we belong? Where do we live? Even in the midst of erosion.
0: Do you feel like your life is moving more towards the life of the spirit?
1: I do. I'm not sure I've ever said that. I do, and it, it feels like a natural progression, you know, as one gets older. I think there's a perspective that's gleaned just through the course of, of of your life. And I think it becomes less about material things or, I mean, I've never been one to have goals or really a set plan, but, you know, I think at this point, I just turned 64, It it is about the spirit and a revolution and evolution of the spirit. And you hope that you've gleaned some semblance of, of grace or wisdom in, in the process of, of both eroding and evolving at once.
0: Was writing something you started as a young age, and did it begin for you as journaling? Like, how did writing come to be? It, it, I get the feeling that in some ways writing saves you.
1: I think writing has saved my life, and this will tell you something. When I was in my 20s, I think I was in my late 20s, and I found out that The Secret Language of Snow, at the time it was called Snow Language, um, a book for children about winter ecology, when I found out that was going to be published by Sierra Club Books and Pantheon, Missy, I didn't tell anyone for a year that that was going to happen. And I don't know if it was that I was ashamed or that it was growing up a member of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, that it was unbecoming to have a voice, that you didn't um, put yourself out in front you know, in any way to be seen or, or to be set apart from others. So I, I kept that as a secret even from my own family. I told Brooke, my husband, that was it for a year. And I look back at that now and I think how sad that you couldn't even celebrate, you know, something that you cared about or that you had worked toward or had created. But I think that writing had always been a private gesture for me. I I kept journals ever since I can remember. I mean, my, I have journals dating back to second grade.
0: Do you feel that your writing has helped in advocating for Saving Wild Places?
1: You know, I think that's hard to know. I think where we are right now, I would say no. It hasn't made any difference at all. But it's made a difference to me. And it's helped me to understand where my anger is. It's helped me to transform my anger into sacred rage and to try to create beauty after, out, of, out of despair. I don't think I write with the hope of making a difference. I think I write, try, and make sense of, of the chaos to answer the questions that keep me up at night to begin a conversation, create um, community.
0: But you never know what activists might read it at this at the right time or what mother or what you know, young mind might read it and it might push them to think about something different i mean something that you wrote a lot about was is your work with students and the way that you went out i think it was in wyoming and utah where you did sort of cross disciplinary classes with students and went out into communities where maybe there was fracking going on or some other environmental damage or environmental threat and you had conversations with the community you did art with the community you did art for the community can you talk a little bit about those experiences.
1: Teaching is my greatest joy, Mitzi. You know, I don't see myself as a writer. I I understand myself as a teacher, and what that really means is is being a student. I love my students. I love being in the field. You know, I love um, cross disciplinary conversations. You know, when I was at the University of Utah in the Environmental and Humanities Program, that's what we did. We we were going into um, communities in Utah like Vernal, like Moab, you know, like Landing, um, and also on tribal lands, you know, seeing what impact the fossil fuel economy has on the people who live there. And and we were able to listen and we were able to create theater and film. And, you know, students in their thesis, you know, many of their theses have been published that We have students you know, that are working for federal agencies, students that have run for office and won, teachers, to me, that, that's what thrills me. And in the process, you know, I continue to be humbled every time I'm in a classroom by all I don't know and what they see that I don't. You know, here at the Harvard Divinity School, it's been so exciting to be able to, how to say this, you know, I think many of these students, they've done everything for everyone forever. And as a result, have maybe lost their voice. You know, forgetting you know who they are because they have been something for everyone else. And to watch that process of erosion, of of the ambitious self into the authentic self, has been so powerful to me. And then to see what really comes out of out of of that liberation. When I was um, working in Wyoming, um, we did what was called. Um, weather reports and the students wanted to get outside of the classroom. These were poets, these were fiction writers, these were non fiction writers, essayists. And again, we went into these mainline communities for coal, you know, up in the Powder River Basin where it's coal bed methane, you know, looking at the frack lines in the Jonah fields in the shadow of the Wind Rivers. you know, going up to Casper where the money is. Um, and the businesses are held, and then going into the Wind River Range and, and recognizing in a town like Riverton, there are the Indian bars and there are the, the roughneck bars, and they don't intermingle. And you, you see what segregation looks like in the American West. To me, this has been my greatest education.
0: How did you end up at that, at the Harvard Divinity School, and what, what do you teach? I'm here because I got
1: fired from the University of Utah. And it was probably the most painful experience I've had professionally. It's a long story. In 2016, after one of our classes, we were, which was a, um, an intensive seminar where our students, we went into these communities. We were all transformed by them, by looking at the tar sands mine in the book list, by looking at the flares and the fracking that was going on on the edge of Canyonlands by talking to tribal members about Bears Ears and why it is a spiritual landscape for them. Um, To be able to see a a rainbow at night and what that looked like in Dark Canyon In it takes my language away, it changed all of us. And then I had the opportunity to go to Paris for the, the climate talks And I remember being in one of the demonstrations, manifestations, where from the Arc de Triomphe to the Eiffel Tower, you know, thousands of people walked in solidarity on behalf of climate change. But then, let's see, something happened. I remember turning the corner literally and figuratively, metaphorically, and I thought, I'm done. I can't do any more of these marches. It's not enough for me. And I remember taking myself out of that river of engagement and protest. And I sat down on the lawn and I looked up and there were Indigenous people from the Amazon carrying this banner that said, keep it in the ground. And it was like a neon banner went off in my own mind. And I thought, I am going home and I need to do something in my own home ground in Utah. And two months later, organized by various activists in Utah, organized a protest Against the Bureau of Land Management oil and gas lease sales in the public land, primarily in southern Utah in the Red Rock Wilderness, I ended up in the wrong line and found myself sitting with oil and gas executives who would bid on those lands. And uh, I heard the language of the auctioneer and of of these men, and they were men, and I was sickened by it. I knew those lands; they were in the county where we lived. And to make a long story shorter, Brooke and I both agreed afterwards that we would buy some of those leases on the remnant sale, where they, they go up for sale for $1. fifty an acre, and we bought 1,120 acres on our debit card, hoping to heaven that we could pay for them, which we did. Two weeks later, I was called in to our dean's office. She was from Indiana, been there nine months. To my surprise, she said, we want to thank you for your service, but you're no longer teaching here. I resigned, but they wanted me gone, and it was extremely painful. And I sat with that grief for nine months. Um, I didn't take another job. I wasn't really offered a job in in the West per se, um, because of the oil and gas return. As you know, um, most of our state universities are heavily funded by the fossil fuel industry. Um, what I can tell you is that our leases were pulled by the BLM because we said that we would not develop them until science could show us that the fossil fuel was worth more above ground than below, given the cost of climate and a sustainable future. We appealed the case. It is still before the land board of appeals in the Department of Interior, going on three years, no decision yet. And a denial of justice is a decision of justice. And so we're at a point now where we may push it a little. But what we found through a freedom of information request was that no lease had ever been rescinded since the 1920 mineral leasing act so it was it was politics and it was ugly and it was painful and after the nine months miraculously i got a call from the harvard divinity school that said we've been watching we have seen what you've been involved with and we feel these are spiritual issues as well as political issues, and we would love to have you come, and I'm still here.
0: Well, one of the questions that you raised, it was in a different essay that was such a poignant question to me, it was one of my favorite sort of philosophical questions in there, was you were wondering if it was better for you to teach at local maybe community colleges or local colleges that have less money than a place like University of Utah or the Harvard Divinity School where you know you're going to get the future leaders of our country and our world and you can influence them but what about these kids who've worked so hard and are so hungry maybe in the less privileged institutions
1: it's a dilemma and i i think about it a lot and i know you know we have a son from Rwanda And he went to school for two years at the Salt Lake Community College. It saved him. I mean, he absolutely, when I say it saved him, you know, I think he would have had a very difficult time at the University of Utah or a four-year school, you know, coming out of his life experience. He had not been back to school since fourth grade. He survived a genocide and education wasn't part of that um, afterwards. You know, he was working as a child and as a teenager to support his his family. And and when he came to Salt Lake for an education, he had never completed a book. And a very astute, sensitive, loving, perceptive professor handed him Ishmael Baez's book, his memoir, A Long Way Gone. And here was Louis, who had been, in his words, hunted as a human being was reading a story of a child soldier. So I have deep, deep convictions for the power of community colleges. And I know that is where I will return. But what I'm also finding, and I will be candid with you, there's a different kind of impoverishment here at Harvard. There's a lot of fear here. The expectations are high. And, you know, the students worry if they will measure up. There's a lot of pressure. And... I think my task here is to release that pressure, to say the only obligation you really have is to tell the truth and to be who you are and to use your gifts and give them up into the name of community. It's a different kind of ambition.
0: One of the last essays in the book is called A Beautiful, Rugged Place, Erosion of the Body. is probably my favorite in the book, and it's, it's very deep and profound and sad. And it's about the suicide and the struggles of your brother, Dan, and how you honored his death with your other brother. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I feel myself cold. I don't know if I can. He
1: was such a beautiful soul, an artist, um, a philosopher. He had his master's degree in Wittgenstein. First and foremost, he was a working man. Um, he worked on the frac lines in North Dakota. thought that would be the answer that you know he would finally be whole. He suffered um, from depression ever since adolescence. Um, he There was a big boom in the balkan oil fields. He came home shattered, like so many of the men there. And I found him on the streets of Salt Lake City. He worked for. You know the family business for a long time. He had a successful career as a logistics manager in California and then was laid off in the downturn of of two thousand and eight you know, a complicated life, deep suffering. And yet he always felt, I think, this existential meaning in suffering until I think he realized there wasn't for him. And he was exhausted. and There was a moment where he called me and said, I've bought the rope. And what do you say to someone you love? What do you say? It's been a heartbreak. You know, like so many families, like all families, you know, we've had deaths in our family, but death by suicide has teeth and it doesn't let you go. And I think this essay is the most important essay that I may have ever written. And it, it took six months. And it was really, I think, part of my grieving process. You know, you asked in one of your questions, what's been a difficult thing to write? This was, because I I didn't write it true in the beginning. I idolized Dan, and I idolized him on the page. And I remember giving it to my cousin, who loved him, and they were practically twins. And she said, this isn't the truth. I don't feel Dan. I don't see Dan. I think this is saccharine. And I went back and back and back and it's it's not so unlike the Grand Canyon of just I just kept removing, removing, removing and and until the truth was revealed. And then it became real. And I felt him and I continue to feel him and you know, one of the most meaningful aspects I think of his life was banding migratory birds of prey eagles, hawks, got falcons, peregrines. Um, and I remember his favorite bird of prey was the red hawk, because it yielded. He said it was almost like it understood that we meant it no harm. And I remember in one of our conversations, Dan said, you know, Tara, please write this and, and say addicts are good people. And my brother was an addict um, in terms of prescription drugs, in terms of alcohol. Uh, he struggled all of his life, and I think it was a, a masking of his his porosity, his sensitivity, his soul.
0: One of the things that you wrote in that essay, a sentiment that I think is so true when you're dealing with people who are going through hard times, but also kind of how we look at our politics and our wilderness and maybe sometimes our own lives is that sometimes You're there for the big moments, but not the little ones that maybe we, you know, we don't look at this chipping away of our national lands until they reduce something by, you know, the reduction of bear's ears by so much, but it's been chipping away at losing wild lands for a long time or helping a friend in the big times and not the little ones or speaking out against the little injustices all along the way. And that really struck me, that line.
1: It was a terrible interrogation of my own soul, Mitzi. You know, I mean, you have these fantasies, you know, that you can save a species or or save a piece of land or a national monument, you know. And, And in many ways, as a collective community of people who care, you know, monuments are established because of people's voices and and the tribe's powerful understanding of why these lands matter and, and what it means, you know, to be a good ally um, in, in these instances. Or, you know, I look at the biologists whose data does make a difference in terms of of protecting a species like a Utah prairie dog um, that was one of the first animals, mammals, on the endangered species list in 1970. You know, too, but then, on the other hand, it's a folly, you know, and I couldn't save my brother, and I don't mean that in any context that that I could have, but my brother died of isolation, and I wasn't there, and I have to live with that, and I think all of us who have lost loved ones to death by suicide live with with that guilt of what could have been different. And, you know, I remember one of the last things Dan said to me was, um, knock if need be. And I never did. And I I think about what if I had just knocked on his door and he would have opened it and we would have held each other. And, you know, a cup of coffee in that moment could have made a difference. On the other hand, you know, When I heard that Dan had taken his life, had hung himself, what came out of my mouth surprised me on one hand, which was, I'm so proud of him. Because I know it took tremendous courage for Dan to do that. And that may not be politically correct or that may be offensive to some, but that was my reaction. I know the courage that I took for him. And there's grace in knowing that he's not in pain anymore. But it's a complicated, complicated, um, it's an avalanche and you get buried under the weight
0: of the question. And I'll say that, you know, your essays have a lot of, to contemplate that is sad about the West and wilderness and our humanity and animals, but there, there is hope, and you say in there of, of learning how to live in the ruins.
1: You know, I don't use the word hope a lot because I think hope is attached to our desires. For me, hope is engagement. I feel very strongly about faith. My great grandmother used to always say, you know, faith without works is dead. Engagement for me is, is where, if you ask me to use the word hope, is where I find hope. You know, engagement seen in this youth movement in the past month, um, with young climate activists and leaders. It's the engagement of communities who care about their young people who, who are living, you know, in a in a town like Moab, and I don't think it's so unlike rural towns in the West. Um, there's an epidemic of suicides in the high school, and, you know, what does that mean? A, a friend of mine, Colin McCann, who's an, an, a writer from Ireland, was saying that in the town of Limerick, there were so many suicides among the youth that the parents stood in the river, um, arm in arm in arm. To gather the bodies. I mean, no one wants to talk about this. No one wants to talk about the opioid addiction crisis. But I think we have to, and I think we have to go to the source of why. And I think it it has so much to do with with isolation and with people not not extending ourselves to where the needs are. I don't know, but I I just I know what I believe in most, and I I believe in community. I believe in the power of individuals to inspire one another and to to be there for each other. You know, in those moments when I think I can't get out of bed and believe me, there have been many, I'm aware of the limits of my own imagination. But imagination shared creates collaboration, and in collaboration, we find community. And I truly believe in community, anything is possible. And I'm not talking about a community of of simply like-minded people, but a community of diverse individuals who care enough to listen, and that we can agree to disagree, but we know what binds us together. Water, land, sunlight, children, education, breaking bread together. And that's what, what I feel deeply committed to. And in many ways, Erosion is a book about community, both human and
0: wild. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? You know, I picked, I love your question.
1: I picked a passage that I love by E.B. White, and it's called The Wild Flag, and it's a series of essays and talks of the town city wrote for the New Yorker. But there's one in particular that I really love, from which he took the title. After the Third War was over, this was our curious dream. There was no more than a handful of people left alive, and the earth was in ruins, and the ruins were horrible to behold. People, the survivors decided to meet to talk over their problem and to make a lasting peace, which is the customary thing to make after a long, exhausting war. There were 83 countries, and each country sent a delegate to the convention. One Englishman came, one Peruvian, one Ethiopian, one Frenchman, one Japanese, and so on, until every country was represented. Each delegate brought the flag of his homeland with him. Each, that is, Except the delegate from China. When the others asked him why he had failed to bring a flag, he said that he had discussed the matter with another Chinese survivor, an ancient and very wise man, and that between them they had concluded that they would not have any cloth flag for China anymore. What kind of flag do you intend to have? asked the delegate from Luxembourg. The Chinese delegate blinked his eyes and produced a shoe from which he drew a living flower, which looked very much like an iris. And then the story goes on to hear about what each person talks about, you know, why this this flag. And uh, finally, he says, it is the oldest flag in the world, the original one, you might say, this iris. We are now gentlemen in an original condition again. There are very few of us. And then he says, at this moment, replied the Chinaman, the master race, like so many other races, is suffering from the handicap of being virtually extinct. The old stories don't work for us anymore. We are one people with our differences. A delegate from Patagonia speaks up and says, I fear that the wild flag, one for all, will prove an unpopular idea. It will undoubtedly, said the Chinese delegate. But now that there are only a couple of hundred people on Earth even the word unpopular loses most of its meaning. At this juncture, we might conceivably act in a sensible rather than a popular manner. And he produced 82 more shoeboxes and handed a wild flag, an iris, to each delegate, bowing ceremoniously. Next day, the convention broke up, and the delegates returned to their homes, marveling at what they had accomplished in so short a time. And that is the end of our dreams. I think at this time, you where there's so much nationalism, um, to think about one flag, a wild flag, an iris, as what binds us together, even the earth itself. Um, and to have a kind of vegetality of, of what plants have to teach us about rootedness and aspirations at once, and living so that others might live also. Without plants, we would not be here. That kind of reciprocity between the living world and the human world
0: um, inspires me. So that's what I would share with you. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or hard or changed a lot from the first draft.
1: You know, we spoke about my brother Dan and his death by suicide. I think that's what was hard and that's what changed. And I will just read the last few paragraphs. We carried Dan's remains to our father's house. We walked inside and found John, as Hank calls our father, sitting at his desk, waiting for us. We sat down and told him the story. Dan's ashes weighed eight pounds seven ounces, the same weight as when he was born. It is also the weight of a gallon of water one carries in the desert. Two days later, Hank put Dan's ashes into his backpack and headed toward the Cedar Mountain wilderness area. Several mountain ranges west of Salt Lake City and Utah's Great Basin. Hank hiked for four hours straight up a particular peak that both he and our father knew and that Dan inhabited during the winter months when his work entailed taking deer carcasses out to the West Desert to lure golden eagles down to the foothills for yearly population counts. Hank did in fact recognize the sign, a stone pinnacle in the shape of an eagle head very near the summit. He knelt down On the pale, steep ground where a flat spot emerged next to a bare bone tree sculpted by the wind into the shape of a cross. Hank released the white ashes of Dan's body to earth and sky, acknowledged by a circling heart above that he could hear but not see. One body yielding to another.
0: Do you want to say anything else about why you chose that?
1: No. I think this story, you know, speaks for itself. Um, what preceded that, I would just say, is um, Hank and I participating in the cremation process of our brother's body into bones, into ash, into sky. And again, the acknowledgement um, that we do have the strength not to look away and the healing grace of that. Where do you write? I write... On this couch in this little flat at God's Motel in Cambridge. Um, I write on our porch in Castle Valley, Utah. I write every day in my journal, but I think the most powerful place that I can write is, is in the stillness of the desert in Castle Valley. What
0: do you do or where do you go to get away from writing?
1: There's a walk nearby us, and we can walk right outside our door into a place I call the Circle Canyon, and it's really one of my most favorite places on Earth. And I love that Castleton Tower, that 400-foot monolith, you know, of of Entrada Sandstone. Did you read where um, these four seismologists, scientists from the University of Utah, have determined with their seismometers? Um, just in the past month, that Castleton Tower has a pulse. And it is not so dissimilar from the cadence of our own heartbeats as humans. Don't you love that? And it it measures in its pulse. It can um, track waves from oceans, earthquakes in various parts of the world the fluid at the core of the earth and they have it on tape and honestly Mitzi it sounds like our own heartbeat I just love that what we've always imagined or perceived to be true that Castleton Tower is alive has been confirmed by science and that's what I do when I'm not writing I I'm in awe of 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 the land we call home. I'm in awe of my students. I'm in awe of the beauty that remains in spite of the chaos that surrounds us. You know, when I'm not writing, I'm, I'm living. I'm walking and breathing, and I just feel grateful.
0: Who do you show your work to first to get feedback?
1: My cousin, Lynn. She's a great editor. And our son, Louis. He's really honest, and he's, he's brutal. And I trust that. And he's a really, really good reader.
0: How have you dealt with rejection? You know, when you told
1: me about that question, that you were going to ask these questions after and you gave me to think about it, I realized I don't really use that word rejection. And I don't think about it. That doesn't mean that I I don't experience it, but it's just, it's not in my vocabulary. And maybe it's because I've been such an edge walker for so long. I don't, my expectations are not. To have work accepted, or I mean, I could write a book called guilty. Uh, you know, I have, I have um, been paid more as a writer for stories that weren't accepted than stories that were, and I think it's all about just furthering the conversation. And I, you know, I guess I'm in denial about rejection. I just figure it's not the right reader. Um, because if they lived where we lived in the American West, they would understand what. Um, We're talking about that rocks have pulses or, you know, that we live in a land where canyon walls rise upward like praying hands. You know, if they think that's sentimental or fantasy, um, I just want them to come see it for themselves. And then I just have to um, do a better job of explaining it or, or telling a story that moves them beyond their own rational mind. So I don't see it as rejection as much as I have more work to do.
0: What is your favorite word?
1: Petrichor. P e t r i c h o r. It's the smell before the rain comes
0: in the desert. Thank you so much for your time. I am so deeply grateful and honored. I really appreciate it. Lucy, thank you so
1: much. I feel like, you know, we were able to really beyond words um, I've got a candle lit here orchids are blooming it's been raining outside uh, there is no petrichor here but I feel like for the last hour you've taken me home and you've allowed me to be um, in the place that I love the most which is the American West with with the people that I love and I love that you're in the salt Colorado and um, I know right where that is and by Western standards, you and I are neighbors. So thank you.
0: You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing. My guest was Terry Tempest Williams, author of the essay collection, Erosion. If you'd like today's show, check out my interview with Alan Lightman, an MIT physicist who writes in a compelling way about the universe and our place in it. You can find the entire archive of interviews on my website at firstdraftwriters.com. You can also follow First Draft on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Just look for First Draft, A-D-O-W. That's short for First Draft, a dialogue on writing. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com anytime. Remember, there are plenty of extras for becoming a member and donating to First Draft, including cuts from the interviews from this month's episode that didn't make it into the final show, and writing tips from my guests. The first tier of support is just $6 a month. One of the extras you will receive from this interview with Terry Tempest Williams is her talking about outer and inner wilderness, some of her thoughts about the Mormon religion she grew up with, and how to deal with grief. There will be additional cuts and writing tips from other interviews running this month, so please go to patreon.com slash firstdraftwriters. Coming up on the next episode, Alexandra Fuller discussing her nonfiction book, travel light, move fast about growing up in Africa and the death of her father and son. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin, your host and producer. Thank you for listening.